hopping through social media at night, popped on LinkedIn, and there you are just chilling with your cigar, like dropping wisdom. I hop over to Twitter. I see a, a picture of you with, you know, just chilling with Kevin Durant, you know, the, probably the greatest basketball player in the world. Hello there, listener, and welcome to the 32nd roundtable of the Metacast by Navic. My name is Nico. I'm your host today. And in this episode, I'm joined by Maria, Aaron, and Janie. It's going to be a fun episode. We'll be talking about the sandbox and the deconstruction that Navic recently did. Uh, we'll be talking about women and games. And then Janie's going to give us a sneak peek into what Dapper Labs is up to recently. Um, so it's going to be fun. But first, so who do we have on? We have Aaron Bush, Aaron, co-founder at Navic, says smart things, writes writes smart things. So super excited to have him on. Have him on. Welcome, Aaron. I try. Thank you, Nico. <laughs> and next up, we have Maria Gillies. Maria, um, welcome. This is your first time on the show. Hello. And my first time on a podcast as well. Wow, exciting. Well, uh, I mean, super welcome. And maybe can you give like a very short introduction of who you are so the people the people know who they're listening to? Yeah, um, so I'm a product manager and I work at Hutch. I work on a mobile free-to-play game called Top Drives, which is a card collection game with over 2,400 cards. And we do simulations based on uh, real card stats. Awesome, welcome. And then we have Janie. Janie, you're like the long lost sister. <laughs> it's been a while, but uh, super happy to have you back. I appreciate you saying like long lost sister rather than like long lost grandma or, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, it's great to be back. Um, it's been a crazy, crazy few months and I'm excited that I get time now to hang out with you guys. By the way, Janie, in your absence, I, I think I came to the conclusion that I aspire to be as cool as you um, <laughs> because there was there was one day, maybe like a couple weeks ago, I was just hopping through social media at night, popped on LinkedIn, and there you are just chilling with your cigar, like dropping wisdom. I hop over to Twitter. I see a, a picture of you with, you know, just chilling with Kevin Durant, you know, the, probably the greatest basketball player in the world. And you're just like always rocking these like really cool jackets that even if I tried to be that cool, I don't even, I don't <laughs> even think I could. So anyways, I came to the conclusion that I aspire to be as cool as Janie, but I'll probably never be able to attain it. Live goals. You say that when I'm literally in a sweatpants and a sweatshirt right now, but thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm so cool. A mama three and just the coolest, it's the pinnacle really of coolness. Uh, yeah, so I'm at, I'm at Dapper, <laughs> Dapper Labs right now. Um, it's been great. You know, we, we make, we're the makers of Top Shot, um, NBA Top Shot, NFL All Day, which is close beta. Uh, and then we recently launched uh, UFC, which we'll talk about, UFC Strike, which we'll talk about probably towards the end of the podcast. But yeah, you know, still doing growth, focused on getting new players, new players in the web free space, getting new players into our sports products. And then uh, I also help support growth on our, uh, for Flow blockchain, getting developers to develop um, dApps. And, um, you know, and then we also have Dapper Wallet. There. A lot of stuff going on. Hey, getting people into Web3, I can, I like that. That's a good thing. So uh, yeah, I support you fully, Janie, on that mission. <laughs> cool. Let's let's dive in into our first uh, topic of today. So we have the sandbox deconstruction that Navic did. Um, I mean, every every time Navic publishes a deep dive, I hear like everywhere on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, people are like, damn, this is so good. So um, I thought we'd touch upon it shortly here. Um, so Aaron, you, you worked a lot of that. Can you give us like the executive summary, maybe like a very short history of what the sandbox is and then like the key takeaways from the report? Sure. So the sandbox is a land-based UGC platform that, that runs on the blockchain. So basically people own land and then they can either build experiences on their land for users to enjoy um, and spend money in, or they can essentially rent land to creators who then build for users. And so, yeah, we, we published a big report on the Sandbox and our premium subscription service, which you can learn more about at Navic.co. But we also published um, the intro publicly, which you can check out under the deep dive tab on our website. And I have to give Lars Dusay a lot of credit here. He's been on the podcast a, a couple of times, but he spearheaded a lot of the work um, and insights here. Um, but yeah, um, 
you know, I think, you know, a lot of what we have to say is critical, but before, you know, diving into what is critical, I, I guess I want to start by saying something positive, which is, um, you know, the sandbox's aspirations are enormous. The vision is huge. And, you know, anytime you see something new like this emerge, I think you have to provide a lot of credit to the people who are pioneering it. There's no, you know, roadmap or guidebook for them to follow. Um, there's something fascinating about building a world where people actually own things, you know, whether it's the land or other assets and it has its own currency baked into it. Building dev tools is really hard. So I, I actually really respect the hustle that's gone into the work, but we had a few things that um, we wanted to be more critical about. All right. Um, um, one of the things that sprung to mind that I've, I've seen shared around quite a lot was, you know, valuation compared to user base. Um, could you tell a bit more what we found there and, and, and how you calculated these things? Yeah. So, um, yeah, one of the takeaways, you know, for the sandbox is that it's more expensive than you probably think. Um, and so in short, when we wrote the report, the sandbox's tokens traded for about $14 billion in fully diluted market cap. And that's the sum of the three different tokens that um, exist in the game, which for context is about one third the size of Roblox. And given its 30K monthly active users, we made the point that the sandbox is trading at about $470,000 per active user, which is enormously higher than other platforms. And even Decentraland for context is $24,000 um, and market cap per monthly active user, which is about one twentieth of where the sandbox is. So, um, you know, where it's at is a huge number. And I think um, I, I'll i be the first to admit that we have to call out a couple caveats here. For one, it is sort of unfair to compare a game that's in its alpha to others that are fully live. But the point we were really trying to make is that the sandbox is valued like it already won, despite the fact that after four years of development, it still only had one, you know, you know, subpar alpha. And then second, I totally understand that using a fully diluted number also skews, uh, you know, that value per user higher. But I, I do think no one should ever just use one metric. You should put the context of all the metrics together. But I do think it is important to take into account the tokens that are going to get rolled out over time in the same way that we value companies on a fully diluted basis based on shares that have yet to be deployed. Um, but really, like however you slice it, we were just blown away by the gap between uh, reality, where we are now, and expectations that investors, namely landowners and people who own the government governance tokens, have for Sandbox in the future. And if you think that the Sandbox is going to be awesome, it, even still, it's a highly speculative, speculative place to be right now. Mm-hmm. What do you think causes these uh, the main difference between the valuation of, of for example, Decentraland and, and the Sandbox? What, what is Sandbox doing right in the eyes of, of investors, do you think? Well, the thing is that they actually have about the same valuation. Um, I think Sandbox is maybe a little bit higher. It just, it just looks worse when you start comparing to the fundamentals of the mm. traction that's actually taken place. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I think in general right now, we're just seeing a lot of hype around digital land, digital real estate has sort of been um, a key concept that's just caught a lot of people's attention and trying to like buy the scarce plots among these platforms and just get in early. And a lot of the FOMO that has been associated with that over the past mm -hmm. few months has um, pushed prices up and not many people have really thought to think about, you know, how these things get intrinsically valued over time. Mm -hmm. It seems like what up from what I've seen, people don't really think with you know fully diluted market caps in mind when they make these investments, especially not since I mean these you know tokens everything is free floating, right? Anyone can buy plots of land or these tokens, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of these blockchain projects are valued so highly. It's just people are like, oh yeah, I believe in this. I'm going to put in a few thousand dollars, and then if you have a few ten thousand people doing that, then you get, can get these valuations that are you know off the charts. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm curious, Janie, what are your thoughts on, on these land-based NFT metaverses? Um, how, how do you see, the, see these? Um, I, I mean, land and land sales, I think, are you know, a crucial part of Web3 at the moment. I see land sales as land sales are either a mechanism to help fund uh, an upcoming game that has yet to be built, and it's like a signal for how 
how much desire there will be or how much markets, you know, a market signal. Or I see it as an opportunity to align with other celebrities or brands, like some like Sandbox, you know, like Snoop Dogg's property. And then, but it's not about Snoop Dogg's property. It's like the properties around Snoop Dogg. Those are the ones that are really, you know, that are selling. So to me, it's kind of like this new idea of chasing where these celebrities and brands are buying lots and then trying to surround or, or get yourself some some level of like connection with the hopes that like, well, there's going to be people coming through and like, you know, maybe I could sell something, you know, uh, or rent my land or, you know, so I see it as like a roller coaster tycoon and funding for games. But I, I personally haven't really dabbled in it because I haven't spent enough time to figure out what my strategy would be. Like, is my strategy going to be the, I'm going to basically chase after these people that ha- that I think are going to have places that people want to go, like concert areas or, you know, like, like I could see myself doing something like that or, but, or do I just want to get a bunch of properties and basically rent them, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I'm not like, I, I haven't been in that business, so I don't really know. So I guess that's why I've been sticking in my lane of collectibles and, and, and NFTs in a different sense, but I think land is huge. Um, but to me, it's, um, there's a lot of motivators and, and from a growth perspective, you can't really, you can't try to piece everything out of the gate. You have to focus on one motivator and do it really well to acquire users and to get growth. So that's kind of where I would, where I will probably focus my time as we open up land. Could you elaborate on, on that, that last thing? So I can't. I can't, I, I slipped a little bit, but I can't elaborate more on uh, on land sales. You can't ignore it, all aspects of Web3. There's avatars, there's land, there's NFTs. There, so so I think that um, I, I, I can't see myself as being so binary as only focusing on NFTs uh, for growth in, in my role. That's fascinating. Um, I do want to build on that a little bit and maybe put some of the land stuff into context for the sandbox. Um because there is a lot of interesting nuance to like how incentives work and you know just order of operations that companies have when they prioritize certain stakeholders over the other and just what it means for centralization versus decentralization. Um, and one of the the other points we found is that um, you know at one point management made the claim that no account holds more than one percent of the land, which we found to not be true. There are there are actually a handful, but what actually is more notable in the sandbox is that fifty percent of the land is held only by 300 accounts. Maybe some of those are guilds, I don't know, but, um, and I don't really get why they would touch this right now. Um, but it, the, the point is that it's actually, the ownership of the land is actually very centralized. And this is worth pointing out, not just from the standpoint of whether decentralization is fundamentally good or bad, most gamers won't care, but from the standpoint that landowners are the gatekeepers, it's really important. So they they buy land, but then aren't necessarily the ones to actually make the content that draws users in um, and engages them. Instead, they are often, you know, they're being set up to be the ones that are going to charge creators to use the land um, to then, you know, have other people make the experiences for users. And quite frankly, from a, from a platform standpoint that is looking to maximize its adoption, like we kind of came to the conclusion that it's backwards. Landowners are actually, when you treat it this way, a heightened barrier to entry for creators. And it makes it less likely that creators would choose this platform to build on when they can build on so many others with you know larger audiences for free. So there are some incentives that are a bit out of whack and likely need to change. And uh, the centralization of land ownership and just kind of the gatekeeper model will probably make that difficult. I do agree that land probably has an interesting place, um, you know, in the so-called metaverse and different virtual worlds, like having a place to call your own that you own and you can do things with, I think is super powerful. But I think it has to be set up in a broader context that if you're trying to maximize users, you can't really prioritize the gatekeepers first. You have to build it in a way that fuels really creators first and foremost to then attract users to then make land more valuable. And maybe some of those incentives mean rewarding creators with land, or I don't know, you could probably get creative with it. So I think there is something here. I just don't think anyone has really cracked the code yet. Mm -hmm. In in your research, have you, I mean, we've already talked with uh, Lars in our deconstruction of Axie about, you know, potential ways to 
punish the, you know, the holding of land and not having it being used. Um, in, in your research, have you found any platforms that are successfully implementing these types of, you know, ways to, um, to force, I guess, landowners to actually do something or, um, or, or something similar? Um, I mean, Lars could answer that question a lot better than me. So far in like the blockchain game space, I have not run across anything. That's not to say it doesn't exist. Um, and I don't remember mm -hmm. the games that are, you know, the more traditional games, but I think Lars did at some point provide an example of like, uh, you know, and this MMO, like over, if you don't show up an X amount of time, like your property degrades and people mm -hmm. can just take it or, you know, take your stuff from it. Um, and, yeah. you know, Lars has also made the point too, I don't know if this has been rolled out in an MMO before, but basically like taxing landowners, um, basically and like ensures that they use their land in a, in like the most productive way and it disincentivizes just lazy behavior. And so I think maybe that like someone out there has probably tried doing something there, but that works best in more of a crypto realm than a traditional games realm. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's still very experimental, but there definitely are mm -hmm. solutions that people can try to implement that get at that. It's so interesting that, it, that there's a world where these these metaverses that are have done their land sales that are now being scooped up by, you know, investors instead of gamers have already, you know, done something to block their future expansion and their future success in a, in a way um, and might not be able to go back anymore. Um, I don't know. Let's let's see how that plays out. Maria, I'm curious. Are you a, a land investor in any blockchain game, or uh, what? What are your thoughts here? I I am not finding a mortgage for a house outside of games <laughs> is already difficult enough. I, I was wondering about uh, the usage of of land because if if the sandbox is trying to uh, mimic real estate more closely, it, it is it is a fact that you can own land, but then you're not forced to do something with it. So I was wondering, we're talking about live games that are meant to be around for five, 10 years of the consequences of this, if the, the game design isn't changed, exactly like you're talking about, Aaron, to have an incentive to be creating experiences on it. And I was also wondering if someone churns from the game or if we're talking about real estate in, in real life, someone could pass away. I don't know. Do games based on land have to consider these situations where someone might disappear and never come back to the game? Yeah, I mean, I think games do. It's kind of morbid, I guess. Um, but I mean, I think there definitely are situations. I mean, whatever the reason is that people leave games, I mean, there are there are probably a million that you, yeah, you want your game to be designed in a way that you know that there's going to be a certain amount of churn every month, every year that you know, if you sell everything in the first year to your early buyers and then they all, you know, 90% of them churn out over the next five to seven years that, um, yeah, if you don't have some mechanism to reallocate or just to handle that situation, you're put in a tough, a tough spot. The benefit though of like with crypto is that people actually own them versus like, so they would actually have an incentive to like sell the land versus maybe in like other more traditional games that there isn't like the same market mechanisms. Although in some there are, um, uh, they just would leave it. Um, so mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky question though. The, um, the fact that you just mentioned, you know, that you really own uh, these assets made me think about, you know, censorship. You've, um, you've also touched upon that in, in, the, in the report. You want to share a bit more about your findings? Yeah, I don't think we need to dwell on this one too much. Um, but yeah, there's just sort of the question of censorship resistance within these platforms. And I think on any platform, um, like it makes sense to have some degree of censorship so that, you know, you don't have horrible people doing horrible things everywhere. Like it makes sense to have rules. Um, but the interesting thing about the sandbox is it is, um, you know, Hong Kong based, uh, you know, owned by a Hong Kong based company that, you know, we've just seen like that region more like geopolitically affected by, you know, the pulls of China and, and, and stuff. And so, you know, one of the things that we found on the map, for example, was like one of the, the lands was like a Taiwan flag. And so we were just posing the question of um, like, we don't know what they're going to do about this, but it's not that hard to see a world where, um, 
you know, the sandbox as a company, Animoca as a company, um, is pushed to change something about that, um, which, you know, puts into question, you know, some degree of freedom of what, maybe not just what do you own, but like, where is the line drawn between what you can do with what you're on? So, um, yeah, I think that'll just be an interesting story to follow mm -hmm. over the coming years. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that this is a story that is not only relevant for um, the sandbox, but I think it is in, in general a problem for, you know, blockchains because, um, and we, we discussed this in the podcast with... Um, about you know why gamers hate NFTs. Lars raised this point. Um, like I could now send you know uh, uh, like pornographic pictures to all three of you if I know your wallet, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so that happens on the blockchain. And so you could you know find yourself in possession of this material that you never wanted, but you can't stop it. Um, and I think this because on, on one hand you'd want a platform to be able to. Like OpenSea does, for example, OpenSea um, you know bans some kind, some of these you know pornographic or other you know um, content that they don't want to have on their platform, and they make sure that I mean it exists on the blockchain, but they just don't dis display it. And a lot of people use OpenSea as their you know window into the blockchain to see what they have in their wallet. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, giving that power also you know. Um, and on the other hand, you know, makes it so that OpenSea, or in this case, the sandbox, has the power to to block other content, which you know, you, you might see as falling under freedom of, of speech. Yeah, I mean, I think with any technology, like technology is neutral in and of itself, and it's like how people use it that makes it fundamentally good or evil. And mm -hmm. we've seen that, you know, with just the internet in general, like everything about it, from social media to just what people can put on websites, etc. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have a lot of those similar conversations with things that are blockchain based. And these conversations have already been happening for many years. But in the context of games, like, I mean, it still makes sense to have rules of what is allowed and be agreed upon by the community or the DAO or, you know, whoever, whoever like sets governance um, to to actually enforce. It's just a question of where do you where do you draw the line and how does inf any enforcement happen? that, you know, I think that's that's kind of the big question that a lot of teams will have to figure out for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's harder on user-generated content platforms than it would be, yeah. you know, like most most anywhere else. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, super interesting. If you want to learn more about the Sandbox, be sure to check out Navix reports. Um, it's great stuff. I read it and I, and I really liked it. All right, let's... Um, I, I've, I've actually have a bold prediction here about blockchain metaverses. I don't know if you guys, did you, did you guys see that? Have you guys prepared one? Let's see. Maria, do you have one for us? Somewhat prepared, yes. Somewhat prepared, all right. I think bringing too much of reality's constraints into a game could affect its enjoyment for fun because people usually play games to forget about reality and be able to experience something that they don't get to experience in their day-to-day. -day. So I think we saw that, for example, with Red Dead Redemption 2, where it it went so much into the details of what you have to go through in your day-to-day -day that I personally just stopped finding it fun because it was remembering me about life too much. So I think, I think we'll start seeing, when players start getting into these games, we'll start seeing whether bringing reality into the metaverses is going to attract people or perhaps... Um, take them into other games where they're a bit more abstract. That's a good one. Janie, how about you? <sighs> you know, I don't have a bull beat right now. All I'm trying to do is get through, get through the sports season with, with <laughs> NBA and NFL. Um, no bull beat. I'm trying to think. You have one, one more minute. I'll let, I'll, I'll let Aaron go first. Yeah, so I guess I'll piggyback what Maria said a little bit. And perhaps it's counterintuitive to what we've seen launch so far, but I I think that the winningest platforms um, will be the ones that lean into abundance more so than scarcity. So for example, if you want to build a platform with hundreds of millions or billions of users designing a world around, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of plots of land probably isn't the right call. Neither is having immediate requirements to own an asset in order to start participating or contributing. And there are just all these levers you can um, pull to lower the barriers to entry. And I think that platforms that maximize the 
creative surface area for the most creators and lowered the barriers to entry for the most users will be set up to best um, scale actual engagement, which in the long run is ultimately what matters most and drives drives value. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, kind of connecting that to what Maria was saying, like, I think, you know, and connecting it back to the sandbox a little bit too, was something like like land and even like how it works in that world where you have this like very defined like set of like dimensions you have to work with. Like it's basically taking what physical land is like in the real world and transporting it into the digital world. When in fact, like you could have like, you know, you can do magic in the digital world, the digital world. Like, you know, like there was like a Harry Potter movie where they like have this like tiny tent and then they all like go into it and it opens up into like a mansion. Like you can do things like that in the physical and the digital world. Like you can get creative in ways that lead to more abundance and lead towards like lowering the barriers to entry so that more people can join, more people can create. That doesn't mean that you can't have scarcity of things. Like it doesn't mean you you can't have scarcity of assets or different tiers of scarcity of certain assets, but at the most fundamental level um, to optimize like the maximum number of people coming into these digital worlds, I think leaning into abundance is going to lead to a lot more success mm -hmm. than scarcity. And it's ironic that likely projects leaning into abundance will have a harder time, you know, getting investors excited because investors like scarcity. And they like to have yeah. uh, scarce assets. So um, I think it just depends. Like you have to be smart about the value chain. Like um, there still can be scarcity in the value chain. You just have to put it in the right place. Like it can't be the very fundamental thing that you need to have to get started or to build something in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I hope I hope we see more experimentation around that, um, or even some of those scarcity elements get added a bit later, mm -hmm. a bit later on. But we shall see. I could be wrong. Yeah, I agree. And listener, if you're building something like this, reach out. I'd like to talk to you. Janie, are you uh you have something for us? Well, I think I think Aaron gave me a little bit of inspiration just now. So I think the abundance versus scarcity argument or like like people have very strong opinions whether people whether the project should be uh built for scarcity or built for abundance. And I think the problem is we still haven't figured out the right business models for for each. It kind of reminds me of, you know, back in the day before the app stores and the free-to-play models and games, I was in the gaming industry and in mobile games, and there were no free-to-play games. And it was a very different type of market and model. And I feel like we're still at that stage in Web3 where scarcity is the, the play right now, because that's the business model that has that we have seen work so far, but no one's come out with the business model to support the abundance that I think Aaron is talking about. But once someone does, I do see that scaling quite well and potentially taking over like the free-to-play mo model has with games. So I, I, I fully agree that like there's, it shouldn't just be the scarcity model that, that hopefully keeps for Web3 because that, that kind of defeats the purpose too of, of you know, the idea of Web3. Um, but the business models today don't support abundance and that's when, and that's what, you know, cause the expected value of the, you know, of these things. And so I think that that just needs to, we need to, someone needs to be bold enough to, or, or just like, you know, willing to test and fail a little bit to figure out which, what that model is going to be. That's a really good point. I actually think just just really quickly, like looking at what Roblox is doing, like they're they're hitting at that in an interesting way, which like they're not technically building anything on a blockchain, but they're like working towards the idea of like creators being able to like build items, for example, that then, you know, can get sold out in scarce quantities and then have royalties associated to them. And you know, the, the foundation of Roblox is a free-to-play experience, free-to-build experience, but adding, like, scarcity elsewhere in the chain. I don't know. That's just one, one example of where maybe some answers will come from in a big platform, but it's interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think um, at least what I noticed from the from venture side is that a lot of teams saw Axie Infinity and are like, okay, this is the model that's working. This is what I'm going to do. And so we see, like, a lot of you know, teams building crypto games based around such such a model um, around scarcity. Um, so I fully agree. I think uh, that take was really very good, and I hope to see you know a uh, abundance based game uh, 
thrive soon so others will be inspired by that and uh, and, and start to build cool all right um that's topic one thanks for the insights there guys next women in games this is a topic that i think is, is very important and we've actually wanted to touch upon it quite a few times last year but i felt uncomfortable myself <laughs> doing that because uh, I'm, I'm i'm not the best person to talk about that i guess um but then, um, I mean, Maria was joining the show and, and I think she, she'd be a better person to do that. So um, Maria, feel free to, to give an intro and, um, and open up this discussion. Um, yeah, so first I, I just want to say that diversity and inclusion is a very broad topic and everyone has a perspective, their own perspective to bring into the discussion. So we'll, we'll be limiting it to women in games because that is my perspective and that's something I have personal experience with that I can comfortably talk about. Um, and I just want to clarify that when we talk about women in games, we're not talking about the awesome not-for-profit women in games group. Um, so I'm going to say, I'm going to share some negative experiences very lightly. I just want to say I love games. I love working in this industry. It's such a dream to be able to spend the day designing a product for people to have fun with. Um, there are some things to improve. But what I'm, I'm going to say is with a lot of love. So I've always worked in male-dominated industries, and I quickly had to learn how to get into the um, so-called boys' clubs. I don't really like the topic very, uh, sorry, the term very much because it's very general. Not all men are part of the boys' club, but you you get you get the concept. And when we're in social situations and the topic comes up about stories we've, we've gone through. You know, we can share stories about sexual harassment, discrimination, microaggressions within the office place. And more often than not, when we share these stories, um, my male friends or male co-workers, their reaction is of shock because they haven't really gone through it and they don't really think that it still exists nowadays. Um, so... My, my understanding so far is that I think perhaps people think in general that the world has advanced more than it has really. Because when I, when I have the same social situations and there are females involved, so my female friends, female co-workers, whenever we share these stories, you see everyone at the table go, yep, I've been through this too. This has happened to me. Um, so there, there is a pattern in the, in the industry that we can... We can definitely improve. And I just want to end the intro with a note of hope because there are companies getting it right. Um, I love the company I work in and you can go and talk to leadership directly about something that you know may have gone through uh, or that you want to change. So having work cultures where you can have that openness to talk about difficult topics and feel that you're in a safe environment to do so is such a big first step. And I think as we'll, we'll start seeing more female game founders, uh, females in leadership roles, and when I say female, it's people who identify as she, her, regardless if they're cisgender or, or trans. And I think as we start seeing people that we can identify with in these high leadership roles in, in the gaming industry, it will also help motivate others to believe in themselves more that they can reach that, that level. I can say personally, working for a company whose parent company, MTG, has a female Maria as CEO is, is really inspiring because I see myself reflected that I can get there. That's great. Do you have any ideas on how we can get more females in executive positions within games, games companies? Um, I think it's a problem that will be solved over, over the years because you'll have more women going into the industry and then gaining experience and becoming more senior throughout time. Right now, it is if, if the role that you're looking for is someone that's been in the games industry for 10 years, that's, that's very tough um, because it's, you've been having more women going into these, these kind of roles o over time. And I think personally, one way to help is to foster talent that you have within the company, spend the time mentoring, um, if you have someone in the team who's interested to to grow into that area, because 
you'll be fostering improving the diversity and inclusion of the industry in general by spending the time in training instead of going and going out and trying to hire someone who already has those 10 years of experience mm. for the role. Actually, this this is a, an anecdote, and I don't know this man personally. My wife told me about it, but there's there's this guy, and and um, if he's in a meeting and a woman gets interrupted by another man who's mansplaining over her, um, after he's done, he usually he, he looks at her and says, "You were interrupted, but please continue what you were saying." Um, and you know that that approach, I really like that. <laughs> um, I wish I was as as great as as that guy. Um, yeah, uh, Janie, do you have any any thoughts here? A lot of the reasons I go into early industries like mobile games before the App Store or Web3 and is the opportunity to, you know, kind of get a head start before the men get here um, or, you know, or the fact that, like, I can't win in a console game world. There are more male executives. There are more men, you know, and that's just a fact. And and that started 20 years ago. So, Yes, this will help, you know, in in years this could result, but like you're talking about 20, 30 plus years, depending on the industry, even 100 100 years in some industries like banking and whatnot, that um, that has to be phased out all the way up to the top. And then and then the regrowth happens, you know. Um, And yeah, there's the man explaining that um, I was on a call. Actually, this was recently. And this man. Um, I'm like, I don't hate men. I, I, I dig everyone there. You know, I get annoyed by women and men. So they're, you know, the, my, my annoyance is it has no gender. Um, but I was on a call and this guy was telling me how basically I wasn't understanding the campaign strategy that they were putting together. It was like this agency. And, um, you know, he was like, and you know, this is for Dabber sports, sports brand. And, um, he was like, you know, Janie, you, you have to trust at some level, you have to trust us because like, you know, I play, I play college sports. And I was like, well, F you, like I play professionally. Like, what do you like? <laughs> what does that have anything to do and merit about like how good you are at your job that, Oh, because you play college sports, like you're better at, at getting, you know, new users in this sports category. Like that does, has no, no basis, mm-hmm. but like he had the goal to say that. And, um, and to me, like that kind of arrogance is just, I have no patience for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I call it like I see it. I also like when people call me out for things, you know, like um, I grew up in a really like white area. I have, I, I need a lot of education still. And a lot of my team that, you know, from, from different backgrounds are like, Jamie, that's not going to fly with this group or, you know, uh, I don't think that like that messenger, like, you know, or Jamie, you're not understanding the culture. Like, this is why we have to do this. Like, this is, you know, and, um, you have to be like humble enough too. It'll be like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't be the man that's like, I, I love women. I got daughters or, you know, I have a wife, like, you know, I know how to talk to women. And then yeah, man explained during work. It, it's very, it's a very annoying situation. But like I said, it's a lot of times like, like I, like I do, I just jump to an industry that hasn't had that systemic issue and hope I can create a better one. And that's what I do. And, you know, that's what I keep trying to do is just create a better one for opportunities for women. So hopefully Web3, wag me. Women are going to make it. That's a good one. I like that one. Every time I say wag me now, I'm going to think of that as well. Do you feel like um, it's it's getting, it's better in in Web3 versus like the the old? I do. I do. Well, Web3, at least for right now, right? We're in such an expansion that uh, Mm. everyone's mentality is that everyone can grow. All ships rise with a seat. Like, there is no us against them. We're in, you know, mobile games. It's a pretty cutthroat industry. It got that way or it is now that way, you know? And um, that is not the mentality that everyone's going to win. It's kind of like, I'm going to take your users, your high value users. And like, I have noticed at least, and this is anecdotal, but that um, there is more reception to people, creators, people that don't come from an analytical background, uh, business people, lawyers, 17-year-old artists in the middle of nowhere wanting to launch a project that gets spoken to as if they have a seat, at the, you know, that they have a seat at the table like an executive does. And I really have enjoyed engaging with this Web3 community. Like, it's been actually really great. And I thought it was going to be, like, super trolly. And I was kind of concerned, like, oh, I'm going to have to be on Discord all the time and Twitter. And, like, I don't want people to say a bunch of shit to me all the time. And they don't. Like, everyone's very, you know, it's people you know, don't like some of my collection or they think I'm fanboying over this and people, but like, 
they still, you know, they still do it in a very respectful way and manner and want to have a conversation. So I, I found it really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like because of everything being so decentralized, there's less gatekeeping. And in the end, like everyone has the opportunity or the possibility to make it. If you're a really good artist and you make some really great art, I mean, you, I mean, it, and if you can find like one person who really likes it and starts spreading, it's, um, you're good to go. And it doesn't matter who you are, who you know. Um, yeah, I guess that's also what I like. And what, I, what I've also have seen is that it becomes more and more uh, meritocratic. So I've, I've now spoken to quite a few teams who are working fully decentralized. So they don't even know each other's names. Um, sometimes they don't, they haven't even spoken yet. So they don't know anything. They haven't seen each other. Um, obviously they call sometimes, so they know each other's voices. Uh, but I mean, I, I've, I've known people who work together without even, you know, calling verbally and just write messages on, on discord. Um, and I think there it's, it's pure, like what kind of contract, smart contracts can you write? How good are you? What you do? And if you're good enough, we love you. And, um, you know, because of tokens, you know, everyone's incentives can be fully aligned and all of that can, can work super smoothly. All right. Um, yeah, Maria, anything to add? I was going to follow up on what Jane was saying about those microaggressions um, at work where someone mansplains or interrupts you. I, I think it's, it's very difficult to raise those complaints internally because you need to be speaking with someone who's quite open-minded and understands the subject because it's, it's very hard to prove. Um, for example, it ha- happened to me a lot in my career where... I'd be in a room with a lot of uh, male male coworkers. I'd be the single female in the meeting, and I'd share an idea or I'd share a thought, and it would just be dead silence. No one would acknowledge it. But then, as soon as my male coworker says the exact same thing that I did, everyone around the table goes, "Oh, it's such a great idea! Um, we should definitely do this." And it's something that when you go to for example, speak with your line manager and share, oh, I went through this situation and I really hope that we can improve the culture. It's hard to prove because how can you how can you gain evidence and facts that that has indeed happened unless you have someone in the room who's also looking out for it and can then support you? Um, yeah, and I think it takes a lot of courage as well to see uh, people in the industry and other industries speaking out because at least when I was... When I was younger in my career, it's, it's very difficult to have the confidence of be able, being able to speak out against such topics because you could easily lose your job or also get slandered within social, social circles, spe- circles, especially when working in industries that are still quite small. Mm-hmm. I think we can all, I mean, I know from the demographics that about 85 to 90% of the people listening to this are male and are men within games companies, um, like if there's like one thing, Maria, that you can you can tell to your you know to male or men in, in this industry uh, that they can do to, that would be helpful for for all women, um, what would it be? Gosh, my one moment. <laughs> um, I didn't prepare an answer for such a question. Um, I think you you got this, Maria. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> just just being there for one another and looking out for one another. Like you, you, you do for anyone, regardless of their gender, their background, just, just listen out. And if you see something happening, reach out to the person to whom it happened and see if they're okay. I think just, just having that small, um, awareness in the interactions, whether you're in a group setting or with individuals will, will go a long way to help people feel supported and that they, they can, um, speak out and be honest about it to try to bring about change. Because no one's going to get everything right. No company is going to get everything right. Even myself as an individual, um, I also need to learn a lot more about how to communicate and be respectful. Mm-hmm. So we have to share and let each other know. How about you, Janie? You supported Maria, but now, now it's your turn. My turn. Um, yeah, I think uh, just remind, reminding, it's not us versus them. It's not, um, it doesn't have to be an awkward conversation. It's the micro things. Like you said, Nico, like I also try to be, you know, a good citizen in terms of, I do, I do take a lot of air out of meetings. Like I know that about myself. I am very verbose. I, I can talk for a long time. Sometimes (laughs) I cut people off, but I also appreciate when people say, Hey Janie, like you kind of, you cut this person off and you don't have to be offended by that, but also kind of feels it, hopefully it opens the door that like 
people can casually like, hey, so this person actually is not the admin that books the meetings. She uh, she has a job or, oh yeah, we should do that party. And then they automatically think that the woman is going to be organizing it. There's like these small things that people don't really think about until after it happens or like when it's constantly happening where you're like, mm. but why am I the one that has to organize this thing? Or like, because I'm the woman or... Um, mm. uh, you know, I think people are very conscious about the note-taking thing because that was a big issue, I think, a few years ago. Um, but now I think it's speaking uh, it's, it's, it, and recognizing ideas. So like Marie said, like, there's a lot of times that ideas, women say ideas, and maybe they don't say it with the confidence that a man, uh, a man does uh, sometimes, but it's still the same content and it's still the same idea and strategy. But because they didn't say it in a certain way, that when a man says it, oh yeah, that that's a great idea. We should definitely do that. And I think that's just like mm. it's hard not to want to believe someone that has says it in such confidence versus someone that might say it with like a question mark at the end of it. So I get that, but um, I think sometimes needing needing to break that down into thinking about the content that they said rather than the storytelling is is helpful as well. But, you know, we're all just trying to get by. You know, women, men animals, like, you know, gay, straight, whatever. Like, you know, I think uh, as soon as we can just, yeah, be more compassionate, like, like Marie said, more Mm -hmm. empathetic, more just human on human, 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 you know, kind of discussions rather than, you know, and I get sick too of like going to women's conferences or women's and games, all women. It's like, no, this should be attended by all men. This should not be attended by women. Like it really (laughs) should. Like, like women's based games conferences should be attended mostly by men. It should not be attended by women. Mm. Um, and I really believe that because that's, that's how men are going to start to figure it out or understand. And it's an echo chamber. Like why, why would you want to agree with a hundred, you know, a hundred thousand other women in a conference? It's like, yes, yes, we all agree, but that doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> it's just shouting into an echo chamber. So, mm-hmm. um, I would like more of that the men attending women conferences. With many of these things, it's the people that would gain most from being there are least likely to be there. It's like, you know, meditation. I know so many people are like, oh, meditation, it's nothing for me. And then like, yeah, people that say that would probably benefit the most from that stuff. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm like, I can't do it. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Can I add a couple thoughts, Nico? Sure. Um, so a couple things. So I, I've spent most of my work life in the investing world, which has had similar um, issues to solve for. And the company that I've spent a lot of time working for, The Motley Fool, has done some like pretty pretty cool things to, to help progress progress in our own workplace that I think could carry over to games. Um, and so one example um, is just sort of how we, I think it's important how you measure success. And one of the kind of the frameworks that we've set up um, maybe isn't super unique, but like uh, the DIBS framework, which stands for diversity, inclusion, belonging, success. Um, and the, the point basically is that diversity doesn't matter if people don't feel included. Inclusion doesn't matter if people don't feel like they belong. And belonging doesn't matter if it doesn't actually lead to success. So as you measure any progress that you're trying to make among the workplace, you really have to focus on that success metric first and foremost, and setting up all of the other stuff in a way that leads to people actually succeeding. There, there are obviously like big picture ways to think about that as an organization to set yourself up for success. But of course, a lot of it too is just the little, the little things like being in people's corners and helping, you know, just letting people know that you have their back to help inspire confidence for, for people who are hesitant to, um, you know, step up, whether it's like women or people of color or whatever it is who, you know, have had too many times of being ignored or being, you know, talked over or whatever it is. So I think, you know, the little and big things do matter. Um, Another thing that I've picked up on that is interesting, I mean, you kind of called out, um, you know, just increased like gender diversity and leadership, which is super important, but it's also super important across the stack of whatever you're building. Um, and again, it, a gender thing, uh, diversity comes in, in many forms. Um, and so something, again, I've kind of learned in, you know, the investing world of building investing products, um, um, you know, having diversity on 
the investing team is great because people are just going to bring different ideas. They're going to have different perspectives. It's going to help you make better decisions. It's also good to have diversity on like building the products because people are going to have different ideas on what appeals to different types of people, et cetera. Same thing in marketing, same thing in leadership and setting up a company, et cetera, to succeed. And so again, like as you measure success um, of like any type of like improved diversity push, um, it's important to measure success at a big level just based on how it actually is leading to success of other people and how it's leading to success across the stack. And I mean, I don't have it all figured out or anything. Like I'm <laughs> try, you know, trying to, to listen along with everybody else and do the best I can to help push even like Novik forward and and this. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you know, for other people who are in similar situations, hopefully those couple thoughts help. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, it's a really good point, guys. Um, and then finally, as our, our third topic. Last a few weeks ago, you know, Chong was on and he shared some some things that were going on at Mythical. And now we have our long lost grandma back with her cigar and cool vest. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we, we'd love we'd love to have some insights on on what you know you're working on, Janie at, at Dapper. Um, you know, what, what's what's going on there? What can you share? Yeah, of course. So most people know us from Top Shot. And we have a pretty robust live ops calendar in terms of we do challenges and pack drops and um, we have a quite active marketplace. But as we think about these other IPs, UFC being one of them, and just like thinking about maybe this is, goes back to like testing different models and trying to figure out by sport, by community, by um, just as the evolution of this industry and this community what's going to resonate and work. So for UFC in particular, we're, we're doing, we're, we're playing on that scarcity factor, less frequent drops, drops more around the larger events like UFC's, you know, 271. The top three searches for, as it relates to NFTs, the first one is what is an NFT? The second one is where do I buy an NFT? And the third one is where do I sell an, an NFT? So if you go in that, that logic, right, you're, First, have to explain to them what's the value of this of this thing they're about to buy. Then the second is making sure they can buy it, and a lot of that is like removing the friction, but making it so it's analogous with what they typically do to purchase something. Um, and then, the, which I think Dapper we've done a pretty pretty good job at in terms of like payment and, and figuring out like how to you know click buy something rather than having to jump out of experiences and come back in. 100%. And then the third is being able to sell it. You know. How do I, how do I, you know, trade, sell, buy, you know, and, and, and maybe get the, get something that I want uh, rather than, you know, leaving it to, to, to chance or something. So I think the marketplace is obviously that, that third search, that third query that, um, that happens in the NFT space. And so that's, that's been interesting to kind of look at in the different types of communities. Um, We're starting to get a lot more daily fantasy uh, people involved the crypto community is definitely still there, but um, it's, it's definitely becoming more diverse. Um, we have the collector community. Gamers are now starting to, to come around. I think that because we're not in the pure, you know, gaming space in terms of like have like, you know, we're not Star Atlas or anything like that. But gamers are starting to come in and whether it's because of Star Atlas, great, or another project. But now because they're in the web free space, now they're trying to figure out, well, what else is there out there? Which is... But the problem we had at Top Shot is like people came in last year at this time, right? And they're like, great, got a moment. And well, well, what else is out there? And then they start, where else can I buy an NFT? And um, so we we're kind of the beachhead. Mm. And now I'm excited that the gamers are coming in through whatever beachheads, like thank you projects that are really great and are bringing them in. And now, you know, hopefully they're, and now they're coming to our projects. So, you know, this, that's exciting to see some, some of the gamers uh, coming, coming through. And it goes back to the scarcity and testing scarcity versus abundance and high engagement doesn't necessarily mean scarcity, but it does, but you know, scarcity typically equals higher EV expected value. And, you know, that's just like a really, it's an interesting balance, especially in growth when you're trying to figure out how to drive more players. And you're like, well, if it's not um, a game of scale, then in terms of growth, then it's a game of like, being really specific about the kinds of people and players you want in your projects. And a lot of platforms aren't used to that. Channels are not used to that type of mentality for growth. Um, 
And so the, and the community, I think, is one of our largest growth channels. We look at community now as a growth channel, where in mobile games, it was not considered a growth channel in, in the same kind of ways, Web3. Yeah, I think those are the main things that we're testing. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a bit more about community and what you do in, in within that and, and how you see it and how you use it to drive you know engagement? Yeah. So just like you would see channels, right? Like search, social, TV, community is a growth channel. Uh, and a lot of our campaigns are actually driving straight to the Discord first now because the community is, are the ones that actually sell these potential players and sell them at a higher rate and sell them to, to, to be of more quality, to purchase uh, at a higher value than they probably would if they just came straight from an ad or straight from you know messaging uh, into our into our site. So we're we're seeing a lot of that leverage, like having driving to the Discord, having them get pitched or be, or engaging first with the Discord, um, and so that's becoming kind of a path into. Um, activation. Now you can't buy straight from the Discord, but that would be cool one day. Um, so, so that could be, you know, that that's something that like I would love to to figure out if we could, you know, contest that. Just like, you know, if you can validate yourself with an emoji, I hope that you could like purchase something uh, in Discord, uh, you know, and same same easy click, you know, one click situation. So uh, that's where I want to get to next is being able to transact within Discord if we're driving people to Discord, and that's that's like the 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 area the way that most of our new players are coming in. Have you seen the reaction that Discord got when they were hinting at integrating Ethereum wallet, uh, Ethereum wallets? Um, I'm not sure it's going to be too soon where you're going to be able to buy stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. You know. I I also worked at Reddit, so I understand the visceral reaction of any type of monetization or you know attempt at commercialization mm-hmm. of yeah you know these purist products discord caved so fast though i was i was a little disappointed in how fast they bent the knee to the mob um but it is what it is yeah i mean yeah you got it uh, uh that's a slippery slope now that they did that you know now now the mob's gonna yeah. come at them even harder next time uh, janie i'm curious i mean i remember maybe like your first or second episode we were talking together on the podcast like six seven months ago um i'm curious like what you've changed your mind on since then, like when it comes to growth and user acquisition in this world? Probably community is one of the biggest ones. I used to think that community sentiment and all that was kind of bullshit. And I still do to some degree, but I'll caveat. So there is no correlation or causation between how happy people are with you and how much they buy. There is correlation potentially between how many people talk about you and how good your sales are whether that's good, bad, uh, or net neutral. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have people mad at you. All, you know, and, and in fact, a lot of gaming companies are very wealthy from a very pissed off community and they still buy. I think that's the other thing too, is in a Web3 community situation, you can see, well, if they're mad, are they in there, but they're still buying. So like what the, you know, like they're not putting their money where they're like, they're not, they're not validating the their sentiment by basically pulling out of, um, you know, of projects. And I also think it's interesting where individual sentiment is actually, and maybe this is where sentiment is not correlated. Individual sentiment is not correlated. Maybe DAO sentiment is, where if a DAO becomes very upset at a project or feels like the project is not um, prioritizing them, they'll pull out. You know, I'm part of, you know, I'm sure some of you are part of DAOs or, you know, where you, know, you got some some buying power and, you know, you can throw that around or, you know, tell, tell the, the games team like, we're going to pull out $25 million buying power if you, you know, if you guys keep messing around or don't do this or whatever. And I think that's more of a threat than individual sentiment is this collective organized movement of like, if a DAO is mad and they're actually voting and taking, removing something from the economy, that is, that is a threat. Um, and that is something that I think I, I keeps me up at night or that I think both from a positive though, too, acquiring, like getting DAOs interested in your project. It's a very different type of growth uh, tactic and strategy that I'm trying to figure out right now um, because that's like investor relations. That's like a, it's not just UA. That's like, it's a mix of, you know, you guys are VCs. Like, you know, that is a very, that's a very different exercise, but it's still technically, you know, it's still, it's still UA, it's still growth. So that, that's also something I'm 
dabbling with. That's a really fascinating dynamic. All right. Um, I mean, I feel like we could probably talk about this for a whole more 10 minutes, but we're already past the hour and I like to keep my podcasts around an hour. I don't like when they go over. So um, my apologies for that. But um, yeah, Maria, Aaron, Janie, thanks you so much for joining. I really enjoyed this conversation again. I really just like all, the, all these podcasts. Um, great insights, uh, fantastic stuff. Great bold takes. You know, you know, I like those. And yeah, listener, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed. This has been the Metacast by Navic, and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers.